This episode of Full Stack Radio is brought to you by Hired. If you're a developer, designer, or product manager who's looking for a new opportunity, head over to Hired's website and create a profile to start receiving offers from companies who need what you do. If you accept a job through Hired, you'll receive a $2,000 signing bonus, and if you sign up through Hired.com slash Full Stack Radio, they'll double that signing bonus to 4000 bucks. So thanks again to Hired for sponsoring the podcast. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast, where I talk to people in the software industry about everything from user experience and product design to unit testing and system administration. I'm Adam Wathen, as always, and today I'm here with Ian Landsman, the founder of Userscape and creator of HelpSpot. How's it going, Ian? Hey, how are you? Thank you for having me on. Yeah, it should be fun. So the main thing that I want to talk about, and we can kind of just see where it goes, but you wrote a really cool blog post like almost nine years ago now called uh, 10 tips for moving from programmer to entrepreneur. And there's a lot of stuff in there that's like still super relevant. So uh, it'd be cool to kind of go over some of these ideas and get your thoughts on them now and how they kind of pertain to the uh, software ecosystem in 2015 and kind of just like uh, get some of your opinions on some of these things and see where it goes. Yeah, that sounds great. That's uh, it's funny to even think that, you know, almost 10 years later, I'm having a discussion about this blog post. I remember writing it and I, uh, I never would have thought I'd be getting interviewed on it 10 years later. So it's kind of <laughs> cool. Cool. Awesome, man. So I figured we just kind of like knock down uh, the list and kind of tackle a few of these ones that uh, I kind of thought were the most interesting and we'll just see where it goes. So yeah. the first okay. one, which I think is probably the most important one, is that code is 5% of your business. So can you kind yeah. of explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so I think, you know, as software developers, we always want to focus on the code. Like, that's what's interesting. That's what brought most of us to this profession is we like creating things, just coding itself we enjoy. I mean, that's what got me into it was just the actual act of doing it and uh, creating programs and interconnecting things. And so when you start to then think about running you know, turning that into a business, whether it's a side business or you know, a product or, or consulting, or whatever you're doing, um, you know, that's the part that we are interested in primarily. And so we focus on that a lot. Unfortunately, with coding, especially in kind of the modern era, it's really easy to just code. I mean, you can work by yourself. You don't have to go to an office. You got all everything you need right in your house, and you can just sit here and code all day long. And people won't bother you, uh, you know. So you can really get carried away with it. You can code all day, you can call all night, and you kind of forget that uh, if you actually want to make money doing this, and you're not, uh, you know, you want to create something to sell, that there's so much more to it than than the code, and that the code is, you know, it's not completely, uh, you know, worthless. I don't want to go that level with it, but it's such a tiny, tiny part of a business. Um, and it's, it's like a foundation, right? So you need it. Without the code, like, with HelpSpot, right? If there's no code, we wouldn't even have a product. So we need it and we need the code. But um, once you kind of have the code, that's, that's not enough by itself. That's not a business. That's just zeros and ones. Yeah, and People don't buy that. <laughs> totally. So what do you think? <laughs> is there anything in particular that you think people spend maybe too much time doing or too much time worrying about? Yeah, so uh, obviously, you know, the big ones say are all kinds of things like, um, you know, the, the framework you're using, which obviously I've uh, staked some ground there myself, but, um, you know, worrying about frameworks, worrying about languages, worrying about 
uh, even design, um, if you want to bring that into the loop. Uh, obviously, famously, you know, things like eBay and Craigslist are horrifically designed. Um, you know, code-wise, uh, you know, a lot of people have worked at companies where the product they're working on is horrible. Many people who start small software companies came from an environment where they're working on code that's horrible for some big, huge company. Um, or they're working on, you know, COBOL, or they're working on some other language that they don't find interesting. You know, but the bigger picture there, of course, is right that that big, huge company runs on that code. So it's, you know, a $10 billion company running on this horrible code, and your job is to make it slightly less horrible every day. Uh, but, you know, that's not the core of their business. The core of their business is providing this value to their customers. It's um, communicating with the customers. It's, there's other branches of the company that are assisting the customers in other ways, implementing the, the software and so on, and supporting the software. So, you know, the thing you always have to keep in mind is what your customers' goals are and staying focused on that because their goal is really never to have a piece of software. That's never the goal, unless you're selling developer tools, which I don't recommend anybody ever do. <laughs> but, if, but if you're selling developer tools, then that's a little bit different. But for 99% of the you know, software in the world, um, nobody cares about software. They just care about whatever the benefit they're going to get from that is. Saving money or making money are usually the two primary benefits. Um, you know, if it's consumer software, which is also not a good thing to build these days, but if it's consumer software, you know, it might be some type of emotional connection or communication or something like that. Uh, but yeah, it's the, the hard thing for developers tends to be to stay focused on that idea of, of what the actual value is that the customer is yeah. looking for. It's rarely code. I think uh, one of the things that that point made me think about was that, you know, as a programmer, like you're saying, you know, you're obsessed with just coding, 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 and you can get down this rabbit hole of just wanting to write like the best possible code that you can possibly write in the world, right? That you're right. so proud <laughs> of, of the code itself on the screen. But I feel like that whole thing itself is almost like a moving target, right? Like you look at the where we are now, and there'll be people who say that, you know, if you build an application with Laravel, for example, and you use the stuff that it ships with out of the box, the way that the documentation tells you to use it, that, oh, you're not going to end up with good code. It's all going to be like unmaintainable and you're using facades right. or whatever, right? All this right. drama. <laughs> but, but when you compare that to like, uh, what we were doing five years ago with the frameworks that came before or what we were doing 10 years ago when we were just like, you know, with our includes and all our different like PHP right. spaghetti stuff, like how much better is it already, right? And people built real businesses with that stuff before then anyway. So I don't yep. know, it's kind of interesting to think about that. Like, is it really that important? Like, like it seems like no matter how good the tooling gets, like the standard for what you should be doing with it is always higher than that. And it's never, right. <laughs> it's never good enough to just do like the default. Right. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, you talked about like how you think uh, building developer tools is like a terrible idea, which kind of right. gets me off on off track a little bit, but I think it's an interesting thing to talk about because you mentioned um, you have another point here, a few points down, which is that admit that you don't understand the end user and rectify that. And I was going to ask you there, because one of the points you make is like, you know, there's a good chance that the software you're writing is in a domain you're not an expert in. And I'm thinking to me as a developer, like the easiest thing to build, not the easiest thing to build, but the ideas that come to me are things that are going to help my life, right? Those are the problems that I notice. So if you're a developer who's looking to build something, where do you look for inspiration? If you want to look outside of this kind of like super uh, 
overcrowded developer tools area. Right. So, all right. So I want to jump back on one other thing and then I will answer that question. But uh, just to share uh, an example from my own life here, uh, you know, 10 years ago when I built HubSpot, you mentioned, you know, the old world of spaghetti programming. Um, And HubSpot, even today, is still filled with includes and filled with, you know, the core logic is function libraries. Um, And that's something that we're working on refactoring and we're refactoring bits at a time and we're moving it to Laravel. And that's a slow process that's balanced between make it better and put it on a framework versus, um, you know, new features. And you always have to balance that. But, you know, so for 10 years, this company is, you know, grown every year and profitable every month for 10 years uh, on definitely not the world's best code. I'm not the world's best coder. Um, And so today, I mean, if you're starting today with Laravel or any other framework, really, you know, you're so far ahead of even just 10 years ago. um, Like, yeah, I mean, I like, there was no JavaScript frameworks at all. There was essentially no PHP frameworks at all. Everything you know, every single line of code I wrote by hand um, to do every little thing. So there was no anything that was just, oh, drop this library in and I got that for free. No, like communicating with the mail servers, like all kinds of crazy stuff that I had to write every single line of code for. Um, So, you know, and it still has all worked out very well. Uh, So, you know, that's why I'm very pessimistic in modern programming where when people get caught up on it has to be absolutely perfect because if you're starting with any framework, you're already so far ahead of where you need to be quality wise to get something off the ground initially. And then, you know, later on, if if something's not as fast as it should be, or it's not as good as it should be, you know, then you, you work on that. But um, all that stuff is very rarely important in the first couple of years because you need to get to the point where you have a product that you actually ship that people actually buy and then you can worry about, is it perfect? Is it main, you know, optimally maintainable? Uh, you know, all those kind of things, which to me are secondary to you know, shipping something and seeing if people want to buy it and then worry about if it's you know, optimal and kind of these geeky co- code ways. Um, yeah, like, you know, developers, you always want to get ahead of yourself and you know, make sure 10 years from now when we're still selling this thing that the guys who work on it then, or gals, uh, you know, understand it all, and it's you know all perfectly laid out, and it can scale, and blah, blah blah. But you know, the reality is that you're just as likely to have shut this thing down six months in as you are to still be here ten years from now. So, you know, you kind of got to get to that that next step. So, on on the uh, next question, which was remind me, <laughs> it was just I like uh, you know we were talking about like building developer tools and how you think that's not yes. a good idea, and looking for inspiration right. for other ideas outside of that kind of world. Yeah, so developer tools are really rough. Um, I think selling to geeks in general, I don't, I don't like it. Um, you know, they're very finicky. They are always looking for the newest, latest, greatest. So you're constantly in this battle of, oh, they love your thing until the new thing comes out, and then they don't love your thing anymore, and you just lost all of your customers uh, to the new thing. So they move very quickly. You know, they tend to be very much like consumers. Um, or they essentially are consumers. Now, there's different levels of that, right? And there's you can have more of a uh, a business-oriented tool, like you might sell a code review product, and you're actually selling that at kind of like 
the executive level of you guys need that as code review tool for all of your developers and you're going to do this so on and so forth, whatever. You could have more business level tools and I think that's not so bad. But when you get into editors and bug trackers and things like that, you know, I think it's a very hard market. And then it's even harder now when you have big dominant players like GitHub or um, uh, so you're always competing against tons and tons of free alternatives. So, you know, it's hard to make money and developers are so finicky. And uh, so, you know, selling directly to them, I think is tricky. In terms of general ideas, I mean, I just see ideas everywhere. I, I was actually just looking at this today in my uh, to-do app. I have at least 40 business ideas <laughs> in my idea list. And, you know, who knows how many of them would be good or bad or whatever. But, you know, I think a fair chunk of them could be a baseline business, could make, let's say, $100,000 a year. Like, I think a, a very solid chunk of them could be a single person's, you know, business. Yeah, so I just see them everywhere. I, I think that there's kind of two different ways to go about it, right? So, like, my own story I'll start with. With HubSpot was I worked at a college and we used this customer support tool. And I wasn't in customer support directly, but I had to interact with this tool. And it was mainframe based and it was you know a mainframe terminal and you couldn't copy and paste into it. You couldn't get emails in it. And the only thing you could do was you got three lines to write the issue. So it was completely non-functional basically as a modern customer support application. And I was like, you know, this big organization of several thousand people, this is what they're using for their help desk. Uh, so there must be other organizations out there that are either using nothing or using something bad that could benefit by having something more modern. So that was kind of where I got the idea. So definitely, you know, just things at your job that don't work well. Um, again, sometimes it's hard if you're a pure, so I wasn't a programmer at my last job. If you're just in programming all day, right, then you look at code tools yeah, and yeah. GitHub and stuff. So you're kind of stuck in that realm. Um, so then you might have to look outside of that more proactively, <clears throat> which I think can be done. Again, there's people complaining everywhere. I mean, the internet is full of complaints. <laughs> go on, you know, every, every website out there where there's complaints, go on all the different stock exchange sites that aren't stock overflow, right? And uh, look and see what people are complaining about or what doesn't work well for them or what application they're using that doesn't solve problem, you know, why for them and think about how you could do something differently. And I know that people, the modern kind of media landscape sends people in the wrong direction a lot because you get focused on doing something nobody's ever done before, or you get focused on doing something that's super unique and special, uh, which is fine. And there's people who want to do that. And if you have that big vision idea and you're going to go out and get funding and do all that stuff, that's not my area, right? Like that's not where I kind of come from. But you know, if you want to bootstrap something and create it yourself with you know either no funding or angel level funding and just yourself or a few people, you know, then you don't want to invent a market. Like that's usually going to be extremely difficult to do. So you want to take an existing market that has all, you know a lot of software in it where people have problems and are looking for solutions and put your own spin on it. And sometimes that's as simple as just having a different interface that essentially does the same thing as everybody else, but for whatever reason uh, fits somebody's mental model of how it should work yeah. a little bit better. Um, or maybe, yeah, maybe it has just one or two different features that some subgroup really finds useful. 
you know, things like that. And focusing in on those niches and, and serving those niches, um, that's what you really want to do. And, and I think there's ideas just everywhere all over the place. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's kind of cool that you mentioned like the whole, whole idea of trying to build something that's like totally revolutionary or inventing a market or trying to do something crazy. I was watching um, a presentation that DHH gave like years ago. It was called like the secret to making money online or something. And right. he had like one point that I thought was like really kind of cool, which was that, you know, if you can build something that you can charge 2000 people $40 a month for, that's like a pretty awesome little business. You know what I mean? And that's right. like not something right. crazy with millions of users or anything. And that's still like a million right. dollar a year business. That's going to be able to pay a handful of people really good salaries. And people are going to be able to work on something cool. Like you don't have to do anything super insane, mind blowing to be successful. Right. Yep, exactly. And I think that's a great way to think about it. I even like thinking about it. My kind of ideal example, what I usually recommend to people is to think about it even more along the lines of like, Something you spend, you get people to spend a thousand dollars a month on, or five hundred dollars a month on, um, and only need then a hundred of them, or uh, a few hundred of them, <clears throat> because that's even better to me. The problem, even with so, so on a base level, I totally agree with him. And right, you don't need to think about it as we need to have something that reaches a million people, um, and even but even two thousand can be hard to reach, and if you're just one person. You know, that's the problem with a SaaS app that you're doing it by yourself or in a small group is you're usually going to have to wait years until you build up to that couple thousand people and that takes a lot of time. You know, that's a long time to if you have a family or you just need to eat. Um, you, know, you have to be able to wait that out. So uh, I think a lot of times people are too worried about charging enough money. Like they, They're too scared to charge enough money. So building things that you can charge a fair amount of money for and then also not being afraid to charge a reasonable amount of money for them. Um, so usually you're talking about businesses and and selling to businesses, when you're selling to businesses, something that saves them money is worth money to them. So if they have to pay you $5,000 a year uh, to save $20,000 or $100,000 or yeah. to make that, then... Uh, it's like a no-brainer, yeah. Right, it's not a hard case for you to make. And even in our small company, I mean, I have we have a lot of software that I pay a thousand dollars a year or more for. So I think you know you want to limit how many customers you have to get because it's actually not you just don't have the time to reach a lot of people. And so if you can do something where you only need to convince five people a month, and if you convince those five people, that's four thousand dollars in revenue to you. Uh, that's going to be easier for you than selling something that's cheaper, but you need to convince a hundred people a month because you're just not going to have a way to reach a hundred people a month. So you know, and there's exceptions, right? Like, so people see what Taylor's done with Laravel and Forge, but you know, he spent years building up this open source project and became essentially world famous, and then from there has this huge community to sell things into, which is spectacular. And if you have the amazing skill set, you should definitely do that. But that's not like a playbook that most people can run. It's going to be much more likely that you build something and you, you know, have to hard nose it through reaching small groups of people and convincing them to buy uh, from you. And so when you dedicate the time to that, you know, if you can get a thousand dollars out of them or five hundred dollars out of them, that's a huge difference from getting ten dollars out of them um, a month. Totally. So yeah, you, you know, you talk a little bit about like kind of this rate that you're trying to get 
these people on board and trying to validate kind of whatever you've built, right? So that you don't have to wait to have 2000 people for the business to be able to be sustainable. Do you have any strong opinions about like things like product validation and things like, you know, like the lean startup, like fake landing page sort of thing? What are what kind of approaches do you think are the, the best way to launch a new software product? Yeah, you know, I'm definitely old school in this fashion. I don't I'm not a big fan of the fake landing page or the product mock up that looks like working product and then people get into it and it's not a working product and so you're using that to get people who want the working product. I mean, you know, I've never tried it so maybe it's okay to me uh you know, I'd rather just, especially again today. So it took me, you know, 6 months of 18-hour days, 7 days a week to write every line of code for HelpSpot version one. And today I could have written HelpSpot version one in four weeks uh, of you know moderate days it's because I could just start with 80% of the code completely done for me and I'm just working on the actual business logic that makes HelpSpot different versus um, all the foundational framework stuff I had to write forever ago. So it's so quick to build something that's a version one. So I kind of like the idea of a, of a lean startup in terms of we're building something that actually works and maybe it's not feature complete, uh, but it works and we can sell it for some value. And then, yeah, we can just iterate, iterate, iterate on it. Um, you know, I also think people don't realize how businesses work and that's to their detriment when it comes to selling things. Because a lot of times people are way too focused on competitors. And competitors are not that important because businesses... People don't have a lot of time and it's not their money, which means often they will choose you because they find you first and they're not going to spend a lot of time looking for more options. And so they're just going to buy yours, even though there may be 20 other products that are better than yours in every single way and they're cheaper and they're better and they're, they're more awesome, but they found you first. It seems to solve their need and they don't care that there's all these other possible solutions. So that, cause they, a, they don't care about the price because it's not their money. And B, they just don't have the time. They have whatever their job actually is that they're supposed to be doing. So they're not going to spend weeks and weeks evaluating every possible alternative. Um, so there's, so, you know, just building something that actually works and getting it out there is important because, you know, again, in the fake stuff, I, I worry about that because, okay, I'm going to spend this effort and build this fake thing and get people in this fake thing. But I, I don't know, are you going to be able to convert a lot of those fake people? I don't know. You're probably not going to be able to convert them because they would just pick something else because they needed the solution today, not in two, you know three months from now when you build the real thing. So, yeah. I mean, I think a landing page with a basic outline and an email sign up if you're interested, you know, something like that, I think, you know, is smart and a, a good thing to do um, to see if there's just general interest. But if you're to the point where you're building fake versions of the real product, I think development is so fast now that I'd rather just build the real version of the real product instead. Yeah, yeah totally. Uh, how important do you think it is to try and optimize for being what people find first? If you're saying that that you know is a big factor in maybe being successful, or or do you think that's more just comes down to a luck of the draw thing? Well, I mean, there's some luck to it. Um, there's you know all the different avenues you can take. And for small companies, some of those are cut off. Like you're not going to be able to out advertise, you know, the competitors, for example. Um, like again, in help desk software, the top listings on Google search are $100 a click or $80 a click. So even though we sell something that's not cheap, uh, we don't sell it for enough 
to pay those prices and we don't have a hundred million dollars in venture money to just that we must spend and you know throw at Google. So I uh, see so, you know we don't do those kind of cost per click advertising too much and things like that. Uh, but you know still SEO is still important. I think that's something that people don't even talk about a lot in the kind of bootstrapper level stuff these days. But uh, it's still important for us and and useful for us. Uh, definitely, there's other ways these days to. Um, make a name for yourself in your your company, whether it's doing podcasts or um, still blog posts and medium and all these things get attention. So you do have to have some kind of strategy for that. Um, but you don't need again if you're selling something that doesn't that has a fairly significant financial cost to the customer, then you don't need to find that many people. I mean, HelpSpot launched with an eighty person mailing list, and so today people are like, you need thousands of people on your mailing list and so-and-so, so many are going to convert and all this stuff. You know, we had 80 people and we emailed them once. And that, we built the whole business on that. Uh, so now that wasn't smart. Like, I, I wouldn't do it that way again. I'm not saying you should just get 20 people but uh, and only email them once. But at the same time, you know, if you're selling something that's worth $1,000 a sale, then you don't need so many people. So, yeah, it's a balance. And it's, it's hard. There's a lot more people out there today. There's a lot more companies out there today. So it is more crowded and in most niches, but I still think there's a lot of opportunity out there. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Cause I think a lot of it probably depends on who your customer is too, right? Like you're talking about how things like SEO are still important uh, in the industry that you guys exist in, uh, which, you know, totally makes sense, right? Like if you're building human resources management software or something, your article on medium probably isn't going to be a big <laughs> you know, source of conversions or whatever. Um, So it kind of gets me thinking about things like uh, we've been talking a bit at work lately about like the importance of mailing lists and like building up a mailing list and stuff. And I was kind of thinking about it in my head and I, I was wondering like, you know, what are the advantages of having, say you are someone who's building like a developer tool or something, right? You know, right. God forbid. And uh, <laughs> is, is there a big advantage you think to building up a mailing list versus like having twenty thousand followers on Twitter or something? Like, what are the yeah. differences there? Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, the upside with selling to geeks, right, is that they're highly connected. So everybody's on Twitter. Everybody's got email. Everybody has eighteen other ways you can reach them and connect with them, GitHub, whatever. So. You can get more traction out of things like a blog post that goes viral or whatever. And you, 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 these people are willing to give you their information a little bit more than the person who just works in the back office of human resources at some giant company. So, and there are more ways to reach them. So, the person who works in human resources at the big company, you know, they, when they need a piece of software, they just go on Google and say human resource tracking system. And yeah. so that's where the SEO comes in and you should be on there for a human resource tracking system in the first couple pages at least because that's what that person's going to do. Um, they're not going to go to their friends on Twitter. They're not going to go on Stack Overflow, whatever. For a development tool, it's different. Uh, I also think, you know, I like the idea of building personal brands. So I do think having podcasts, being on Twitter, doing all these things and having a a mailing list that you build even just for yourself uh, is a useful endeavor, even if you're not sure what you're going to do with it. I mean, I wish I did more of that because I had more time to write and did more writing years ago and people, you know, I was 
you know, more internet famous in a certain sense, uh, you know, seven or eight years ago, but I didn't collect anybody's email and I figured, well, people just read the blog and whatever, that's fine. They subscribe to the blog and that all changed. Right. And so, you know, I lost the opportunity to have all those connections. So I think the idea of collecting people's emails and, and even just for your own mailing list on a personal level is very useful. Even if you don't have a product idea today, maybe five years from now, uh, you'll, you'll be able to utilize that and these people that know you and, um, and that you know, plays into everything that does play into SEO and that does play into Twitter and everything. Because if you have 5,000 people that like the stuff you write and, you know, have a connection with you, then when you say, Hey, I'm launching this product that does X, Y, Z, those people are going to link to you and talk about what you're doing and all those kind of things. And, uh, so, you know, definitely that's important. Certainly in the modern era, I think two email is, I mean, email is the oldest thing in the world, right? But it's just gaining in importance because all these other systems, you know, Facebook's basically impossible to use because they it's all algorithmically driven. Um, you have to pay them for everything. Twitter's probably going to go to more algorithmically driven. And it's also just used oddly by the rest of the world. You know, we the way geeks use it is not how real people use Twitter. So <laughs> it's a little bit odd. Um, uh, you know, so email is the way that you ensure that direct connection. Uh, so definitely, I think, mailing lists are really important these days if you're building up a mailing list because say like you have a big audience on twitter or something and you're thinking man i maybe one day i'm gonna put something out there and i really wish i would be able to like reach out to all these people and tell them and you're building up a mailing list do you think it's important to have content that you're sending out or do you think it's more important to just kind of like get people to agree to give you their email and just kind of keep it in the back pocket until you have something to use it for yeah i mean i think Collecting it and doing nothing with it, it's better than not collecting it at all. Certainly, if you you know have something that you're, you know, I think documenting what you do, what you're doing, whatever that is, and whether that means blog posts or a newsletter you write once in a while. I think you know people really emphasize regularity and all that stuff, and I think that's probably you know, that is optimal, right? Every week you do it, and that's probably the optimal way to do it. But even if you don't do that, and you know, once every couple months you send something out and say, hey, here's what I've been up to. Here's a couple things I wrote here and there. Um, and just keep people kind of in the loop. You know, I think that's that's fine also. And then as much as you can cross tie it into, you know, what you're working on or uh, or anything like that, that's even better. But yeah, I don't know. I, I think you don't have to make it your job to maintain this mailing list. Uh, you can kind of do it as time allows and it'll still you know build up. Cool. So uh, getting back to the blog post, a couple other cool ones to talk about. Uh, another one is, that you had here is design is everything relative to the competition. So what are your thoughts on that these days? Yeah, I mean, I still think it's actually come up a bunch of places in my real life, which I won't get into here. But yeah, I, I still think, um, you know, you need to be fairly competitive with the competition in terms of that. Uh, so that, you know, when people kind of quickly look at you, it seems like it's reasonable compared to the competition. But uh, but I don't think you need to go crazy on it. I think that's a problem. You know, one of our mistakes we made with Snappy, um, which is another software product we built for people who don't know, uh, and it's like we really emphasized the design heavily and we spent a lot of money on it and we spent a lot of time with it. And that time and money took away from you know, working more on the product, which I think was a mistake. And so, yeah, and again, it's another area where things have changed a little bit because, you know, you can build something that looks okay, like pretty easily. So, you know, back then, 
I used to always joke that you could always tell anything that was made by a programmer because it was just gray square boxes, right? It was like different shades of gray in the square boxes, and that's all that you had. And so, like, HelpSpot's first background, like, kind of color was this bright purple, which made no sense at all, but it just looked different and design-ish compared to every other help desk solution, which was gray boxes. Um, so now you can throw in Twitter Bootstrap or Foundation or whatever you want to throw in there and make something that looks fairly reasonable with basically no work at all. Uh, so you're, you know, unless you're going out of your way to make it hideous, you're probably going to be able to build something that looks okay no matter what, which is great because then you don't even have to worry about that too much. Um, and again, if you start selling more of it, then you can make it prettier and better as you go. But, uh, but yeah, and, and in terms of being, you know, in relation to the competition, I still think that's pretty much true. Uh, these days, there'll be competition which you can't probably reach, right? There'll be uh, big competitors who just look a lot nicer than you look. The website's going to be nicer. The app's going to be nicer in a certain sense. Um, but even there, there's weaknesses because a lot of times they'll be more sophisticated and things will be more hidden. Um, so you can come under them a little bit and make a big button that states clearly what you're supposed to do versus in their interface. It's in a series of drop downs because they have a thousand features and you only have 20. Um, so there's ways to make that work, uh, work for you and still can still be nice looking, but it might be simpler at least to start, um, you know, compared to the, uh, the competitors. Yeah. I think there's a couple angles on it, right? Like design obviously means a lot of different things in a lot of different contexts, but, uh, right. if you're just talking like visual design, which I think, uh, snappy had a very impressive visual design. Like you guys got a lot of attention on like dribble and stuff like that for right. just because of how beautifully beautiful looking the application was, right? Like really right. great branding, great typography choices, color choices. Like it just looked like a really nice UI. So there's, there's that side of things. And I think it's really hard to compete well, I don't know if it's really hard to compete there, but I think like the the bar for that is like getting really high. If you want to like be right. on Product Hunt or something, and you want someone to click, you know, go to your landing page, and the first thing they think is like, "Wow, this is looks incredible!" Like a lot right. of people are making a lot of really incredible looking things, right? right. So it's got to be right. really crazy to to yeah. grab people's attention in that way. But when you're just talking about like designing the best workflow and things like that, right. which is kind of the coming UX. down to what, what you're talking about there. Like if someone else has built something that's really, you know, enterprisey and complicated, you have a lot of opportunity to, to simplify it. How much effort do you think should be, should you be putting in there? Like, is, I almost feel like that's like your, your biggest selling point almost in almost any product. At least that's where my head's at these days. Do you have any yeah. thoughts on that? Like, where does that come down to as far as like, if you're building something for, you know, the human resources people in the back room who are managing everything with Excel and it's like a total nightmare. Um, right. How how much effort do you got to put into even that side of things? Or where do you think the focus needs to be? Yeah, no, that's huge. And that's definitely the part you should spend the most time on. I think that, well, kind of getting back to the visual design too, I think one area where people have a problem thinking of ideas is they think of an idea and they go search and they find the three awesome funded startups that have beautiful sites. And they say, oh, this is, look at these guys. They're like totally awesome and I can never compete with them. Uh, so they just dismiss that idea when that's not really a good way to go about it at all. Um, so, you know, because getting back to the core question there, the, the kind of UX of it, the how it works, the workflow, your angle on that is definitely where 
you know, you're going to have that opportunity to differentiate and meet, you know, other, the customer's kind of mental model on that. So uh, that's a huge, huge aspect of it. And that's the part, yeah, that needs to be really thought through and to think about how you're going to, to differentiate there. And that's, yeah, what worked for us. Because a lot of times, again, like the same product, even, you know, I'm not actually a huge simplicity person either. Um, I'm kind of more on the side of features and preferences and I'm okay with all the settings and preferences and all those kind of things for the most part. But that doesn't mean that your, your interface to the application is going to be just like everybody else's and, and your kind of core model of how it works is going to be the same as everybody else's. And that's really what you want to try to make different because there's going to be some subgroup that's not being served because they're using, yeah, you have the extreme cases of, right, like in help desk, uh, people who just use email and don't have any tool at all, or yeah, somebody in HR has got everything in a spreadsheet or whatever. So those are people who need to be brought a long way, um, you know, modernization-wise, but then you would have you know a lot of people who aren't being served by the existing tools because they think about the way a help desk ticket should be organized as one thing, and Zendesk does it a certain way, and HelpSpot does it a very different way. So you know they're not happy with Zendesk because it doesn't work the way they think it should. And so every once in a while they poke around and see if there's somebody who's doing it differently, or they hear about you know somebody who's doing it differently, and uh, then they come and look at you. And so that's definitely going to be a place uh, where you want to put a lot of effort is into thinking that through in terms of a better way, or you know, or better for a certain group of people. It might be worse, right, for some other group of people, and that's fine. You don't necessarily want to try to please everybody. Yeah. The thing that's tricky there, I think, is if you're a developer, again, coming back to like this whole idea of solving problems that you understand, right? If you're uh, trying to differentiate based on we have the best possible workflow for this thing, like we understand like what sucks about this tool for you. I feel like that's it's hard to to really like be a master in that domain that you're trying to build right. for someone if it's not like something that you're going to do day to day. So it's like, I feel like it's almost harder as a programmer to have good ideas for products than it is as someone who <laughs> just does something else that software could improve. You know what I mean? Right. Cause they can just hire programmers to build it versus the other way. It's harder to hire the kind of expert in that area. Who's going to work with you day in, day out for months to figure it out. And, you know, I think that's where I used to be, uh, less into partnerships, but I, you know, these days I think I'm a little, I have more positive light on the idea of having um, a co-founder. I think for a lot of reasons, having done it now without a co-founder um, other than my, my wife and I co-founded it, but that's like having, that's not like having a co-founder. So if you're involved with your significant other as your co-founder, that's not a real co-founder because there's too many things that that person can't help you with. Like when you go on vacation or, if you're sick, they're just taking care of you or whatever. So, you, you know, you're not getting the benefits there usually. Um, so having a co-founder who's outside of your household and, you know, not another technical co-founder, but somebody who is, you know, a subject matter expert in that area would obviously be great. Um, but it kind of comes back to where maybe you don't even start out that way. You know, I'm a huge fan of listening to your customers, you know, and things can change. So, you know, I'm not that opposed to the idea of, you find a market, people are complaining about product X in this market. You know, you build something that works in a similar way. You don't necessarily have to have a totally unique 
completely different in every way vision for it, uh, you're going to build something that meets these needs and then you're going to market it better or you have an interesting idea on how to to reach people. You know, Maybe your business model hinges on a better way to market a product or a better way to reach a, a group of people who aren't being reached by that product um, rather than on the product. Right? It gets back to that 5% code. So instead of thinking about it so product focused where we only are thinking about the product itself, it's the product's this tool. There's a lot of companies that make hammers uh, we can make a hammer and then maybe we market that hammer better or we inherently have some access to a group of people who need hammers and we'll just build a hammer and we'll sell it to them. And it's the same as everybody else's hammer. Totally. Fine. Who cares? <laughs> maybe it is uh, someone else's hammer. <laughs> right. Maybe it is. There's, I mean, like in, we don't ever talk about that, right? But there's tons and tons of companies. That's the whole foundation of the whole company. They don't write any code. They don't do anything. They license the code or they license some other system and they sell it. And that's their whole business. Um, so, you know, again, we want to build it. We want to create it. We want to put our stamp on it. Um, we want it to be unique and special flower, but if you want to make money, then sometimes you have to come down and notch off that ideal and uh, be more practical. So I'm definitely not saying you should just copy it or steal it or anything like that, but I don't think it has to be entirely unique and to open your mind up to thinking about what aspect of the business as a whole is going to be unique. Um, and maybe it's the pricing model of it, right? Like there's simple things like that. There's a bunch of different ways things are priced. Maybe you're going to price your widget, you know, by usage in some way where everybody else prices it in tiers or whatever. And maybe that's going to be enough to set you apart. And, or maybe you found a kind of getting back to a more geeky way. Maybe you found the way to offer a free tier in a market that traditionally doesn't have free tiers because it's too expensive to store X amount of data. But you found a way to store it better, faster, stronger, and that'll be your thing. But the features of the thing itself are basically the same as everybody else, but you have this free tier that nobody else has, and that's going to give you that initial hook uh, because you found a way to affordably do that or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's thinking about the whole business and all the aspects to it's really important because if you just think about yeah the product and the code that leads you down a certain path and then uh, I mean, yeah even if it starts out as the same hammer as everybody else you're gonna get your first ten customers and then you're gonna get your first hundred customers and they're gonna have tons and tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of feedback for you and then you assimilate all that and that's where you're gonna get you know that's where shipping it is important because once you get that feedback from those initial customers that's gonna tell you what you need to do. And that's where you'll start learning about weird edges that aren't properly handled by other systems. And then you can differentiate uh, more. So that's where if you're in a market, yeah, maybe you don't know everything about it. You have to start out with kind of a plain vanilla version. And then you can craft it into something more unique as you go and you get that feedback and you build those relationships. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I think one of the the fears that I have, at least when it comes to that, is as much as I know that I'm supposed to put something out there right away, no matter kind of how many other things I want to do with it, I'm always I, I'm always worried that I'm gonna like lose that one opportunity I get for making a good first impression. You know what I mean? Right. So mm-hmm. how important do you think that is? Yeah, I think that is definitely a super big fear. Um, 
but I just think you kind of have to always be launching, you know, like, so you just have, you could just keep launching because the reality is if nobody saw you the first time, then you can just do it again, right? Because nobody saw you the first time. So uh, it's not a big deal to do it again. And so, and that's where also too, that's one of the kind of trickier bits with something that's more SaaS oriented um, is you don't necessarily have those big milestones of more traditional based software, like that's something we're changing with HelpSpot. So with HelpSpot, it's 10 years old, but we're on version three because we've done these big releases like 2.7. It was a huge release, but we just called it 2.7, which was stupid. Uh, we should be on version 10. So every year, we should have a big new release, and that's what we're going to do, and, which is basically what we were doing, but we didn't market it that way. And so, so the same thing is true of yourself, right? So you launch it, and not that many people come, but you at least get enough customers that there's some promise there, then even if it's just a few. So add some features and then boom, new big version and, you know, market on that new big version, market on that and keep going back to the well uh, on that over and over uh, until you start to, you know, get some traction on it. Yeah, it makes sense. So um, HelpSpot is like a one-off sales sort of software, right? Like, I don't know what the, maybe the best term for it is because I'm sure you have like recurring revenue and stuff of some sort, but it seems like obviously the SaaS is the sexier option these days and everyone wants to build right. a SaaS. What would you say to try and convince someone maybe that it would be worth considering building like single sales software solutions and and some strategies for keeping the money rolling in even if you know you're building something that's just meant to be sold as like a one-off purchase? Yeah, so a lot to say on that. So yep, so HelpSpot is on premise, we call it, right? So you can you download it. Um, and install it. And we are building HelpSpot Cloud, which is basically the SaaSification of HelpSpot. But e even on HelpSpot Cloud, the people will own it. So they buy a license, they own a license, um, they can host it with us and we'll charge them money to host it, but they could always bring it in-house and run it on their own servers. Okay, so uh, there's a recurring component. So every year people pay for support. It's optional. If you don't pay for it, you don't get support and you don't get upgrades. And if you do pay for it, you do get those things. Um, again, most business customers, if you have 75 people using HelpSpot 40 hours a week, you don't want to not have support. You don't want to not have upgrades. So it's a fairly steady recurring revenue, even though it's not as truly um, steady as SaaS with every month automatic. It's fairly automatic because, again, that enterprise type customers don't want to be without support and updates. So uh, that's the recurring component of it, which is now a very large part of our sales. After 10 years, the majority of our sales is support renewals um, as opposed to new licenses. Are those renewals like on the schedule of the customer who bought it originally too? So it's almost like yeah. recurring revenue every month anyways? Right. It's, a, it's yearly, but otherwise, yes. So it's like on the anniversary date of their sale, they uh, would renew. And yeah, so, so it's not they, like everyone pays in June. It's like if someone right. signed up in May, then they're going to renew in May. And I'm sure you do sales every month exactly. of the year. So, Right, exactly. So it's, it's, we're, it's fairly steady like a SaaS app, essentially, because every month there is uh, those renewed supports. And, you know, it's Fairly, so it's not as expensive actually as some of the SaaSes these days, but it's, you know, right now our pricing is 100 bucks a year for support for a license. So if you have 50 licenses, that's $5,000 a year that you're paying in support. Um, but you also paid us $300 a license up front. So, you know, so we got a big upfront amount of money from you 
and then we have this yearly support. So that's one of the really big differences that's huge is you get money up front when you sell licenses versus SaaS where you have to wait the whole year for that $200 or you know, in our case, $300 for a single license. Um, instead of waiting the whole year and then having this kind of cla- you know, cash flow issues that lots and lots of SaaSes have, um, we got $300 today. And so that's a huge difference. So like the first month of HelpSpot, we sold $4,000. And to sell $4,000 in a SaaS at you know, kind of normal SaaS pricing today of $20 a head or whatever, you know, you have to sell a lot um, to have the first month be $4,000. Uh, so early on, it's, it's tricky with the SaaS uh, to do that. So, you know, I think people could think about it in a couple different ways. Like one of the interesting things would be to, when you're building it, uh, kind of on the geek end here, really limit your stack. So it's very tempting to integrate all these other services to make your development go even faster. But if you have all these dependencies on all these services, then you can never make an on-premise version. And people don't want it. They're like, who cares? But, you know, like GitHub, for example, they sell an on-premise GitHub. And it's insane expensive. And I bet you it makes them loads and loads and piles of money uh, because, you know, they're charging tens of thousands of dollars to these enterprise customers that want to put it on their own servers. And it's shocking and people don't believe this, but people have their own servers and they have cloud servers and they have people who manage them. And they might have, you know, there's whole industries where, they can't use SaaS. Like we have a lot of customers in healthcare and they run HelpSpot completely behind their own firewalls and it's not even on the internet. Um, or banks or schools or all kinds of industries where there are IT departments. And maybe someday, right, that'll all go away and truly everything will be in the cloud. But between now and then, you know, you could make millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars on the way to truly 50 years from now when everything's in the cloud, right? So, so on a practical sense, if you leave yourself the option of maybe producing an on-premise version of your product, that's kind of interesting. Um, if it's not so tied to external services that it would be impossible to make an on-premise version. If somebody comes to you and says, I have $20,000, I want to give it to you and run it on my own servers, you could say yes to that instead of saying no, the cloud's better, you have to put it here and pay us our $20 a month. And they're like, we don't want to, we want to pay you $20,000 and run our own servers. So, you know, you could leave yourself the technical option to do that, even if you don't actually do it. Um, You know, I think SaaSes could try different pricing models. Like if I, uh, you know, do another SaaS, I'm definitely going to try doing just annual only. So you have to pay us for the whole year up front. And that makes a huge cash flow difference because we're going to get you to pay that up front. And annual sales just have a lot of interesting benefits. Um, you know, the people are more inclined to really give it a go versus, oh, well, they paid for a month and then, you know, they ditch it. Um, you're not having to resell it all the time as you kind of are with SaaS. So, you know, once you've made that sale, they've committed to a year with it. You know, we have a very generous refund policy and all that, and we, you know, we give money back to people years later. Uh, you know, if they're not happy with it, it's fine. Um, but we do very, very, very few refunds. So uh, you could have all that stuff. But basically, if people commit to a year and they go to their boss and they say, "I need two thousand dollars," and they get it and they pay you, those people are going to use that product for a year, and that gives you a lot of time. Versus, 
you know, month to month, uh, having that pressure of essentially reselling to them every month and making sure they're paying and all that stuff. So, uh, you know, there's other things that opens up as like, nobody likes to do this, but is to use invoicing. Um, a lot of our sales are invoice sales because a lot of businesses want to pay by invoice, not credit card. Um, you know, it's hard to do that monthly unless you're really charging a lot of money. So normally you're going to only take credit cards in a SaaS app. So, you know, again, having that option to invoice is a nicety that are, is important to some businesses and saves you a lot of fees. I mean, I love when people pay us with checks because we pay nothing versus yeah, totally. hundreds of dollars in fees. So, yeah, so there's a lot of different kind of angles like that. And I mean, SaaS is definitely, once you get to a certain scale, it's great because it's, it's not variable that much and that's nice but um but on the way there is really the the kind of tricky bit yeah i could see that for sure it's it's i guess there's probably a lot of situations too where there's especially if you're looking outside of like the developer world like we're talking about right like finding ideas in these other industries that kind of have maybe a little a little bit more old-fashioned or not on the on the cutting edge of how they run their stuff like there's probably a lot of people who just straight up don't want to pay month to month like that just rules it out completely if they yes, can't at least absolutely. pay for a year or or buy it, right? Right. Because you need a bunch of signatures and a purchase order and like all this stuff, right. and that's just never going to happen for something that's month to month. So, I mean, you you definitely make it sound like a really appealing approach to take, and uh, especially right. coming from someone who's tried both, right? So it's definitely an interesting thing to think about. I think if you're, especially if you're looking outside of the trying to find other ideas and in other industries that haven't been as well served by software as the software industry itself. It's probably right. something that's like really good thing to consider. Yeah, no, it's uh, it, it, there's just a lot of advantages. Like it creates that commitment on their part. It, yeah. For bigger companies where they have to get approvals and things, nobody wants to do that every month or they get pestered every month about why is this charge on their card? Like they like knowing that they just paid it and that they're done. Yeah. I think there's like another, you know, that's a thing that turns, geeks off to this stuff, right? Is nobody wants to think about taking a check. Everybody just wants to hook it up to Stripe and be done and and not think about it. So like on my website, we can put the link up or whatever, but I have a thing on how to, I don't even remember what the article's called, but I blog the post about basically how to accept purchase orders and it goes through like how you deal with when companies send you purchase orders and how to invoice them and uh, it's not, it's all simple stuff and it takes no time at all and it saves you it saves us tens and tens of thousands of dollars in just credit card fees. And it lets us sell to people who we wouldn't otherwise sell to. And it lets us take thousands of dollars up front instead of, you know, a thousand dollars over months. So yeah. So again, for me, obviously I always get focused back on very strong, heavy B2B type markets, like where these things are possible. Obviously you can't do that to consumers at all. You can't do that to small businesses is a little bit trickier sometimes. And we take credit cards too. So, I mean, that's fine. Um, but it's always, always a year up front. Um, even our hosting service will be a year up front. So you'll have to pay a whole year and, uh, and make that commitment. So, yeah, but I think that, yeah, just there's opportunity in the SaaS for, for annual payments, which at least gives you a lot of the benefits and gives you the opportunity to invoice and, and things like that, uh, which is kind of nice. But yeah, I do think there's a big, underserved market of companies. It's kind of interesting because we've gone full circle. So when HelpSpot came out, there was almost no browser-based help desk software or much of any other software uh, that was 
purely browser-based. Even though we weren't SaaS, we were an on-premise app, you still installed on a server, it's all through your browser. Um, then, you know, a couple of years after that, all the big SaaS help desks came out and everything was browser-based. And now, there's still, every day there's new help desk apps, but there's no new on-premise help desk apps ever. So you have all these companies that need or want to use on-premise app that there is no other options for. So, you know, it's like that we have this kind of, and there's, there's other help desk software that is on-premise, but um, all of us have been around for a long time and all of us, you know, have this kind of niche sort of trust cells. And I think that there's other, a lot of other markets out there like that where it could be interesting, you know, a more modern kind of take on it might be to do something um, like Discourse is doing, if you're familiar with Discourse by Jeff Atwood. So, you know, do an open source app and make it open source. And that, you know, certainly helps with your marketing. We're actually on product and support, which is this little site I run with interviews. Um, Jeff Atwood is actually on this week and he's, I asked him about this a little bit and, you know, you're not going to get a lot of code contributions because a full app is different than like a, a library, right? Where it's hard for somebody to kind of grok a whole application and make meaningful contributions. So that, the open sourceness of it in that way, you maybe don't get as much out of it until it reaches a really big scale. But um, marketing-wise, it's interesting. The ability for people to just use it themselves, one-off things is kind of interesting. And then you could have either a pro version, which you charge for. You could have dual licensing, where there's an open source version, but if you use it commercially, you have to pay the license costs, even though it's open source. <clears throat> the model they use is that it's just open source. Uh, but they're going to have the best hosting for it. So if you want the no worries hosting solution, you go with them. Um, which So we have two different discourse run forums. And so I pay them $200 a month for these forums for them to host them. And so they're getting $2,400 a year out of just little userscape to host these forums because I don't ever want to spend five minutes fixing yeah. Ruby, <laughs> right? Like that to me is worth $2,400. And we're not that big a company. So we spent $2,400 just to save me the inconvenience of my forum being down because I don't want to know anything about Ruby. So there's lots of bigger companies that you know are willing to pay for things, many multiples of that, for seemingly insignificant uh, bits of software or conveniences that uh, you know m- much more than you'd, you'd ever think. Um, like even the other good example, we don't do this now, but it's something to think about doing is to have like enterprise support that has some additional features. And for example, Atlassian, which a lot of people probably know, Jira, Confluence, their enterprise support starts at $35,000 a year. So they have companies who are spending $2,000 a year for Jira and then paying $35,000 a year for enterprise support on their couple thousand dollar Jira. So, you know, there's these different opportunities there to you know, have services and things like that, which we've never done a lot of, but it's something we'll probably do more of. Um, because companies are definitely willing to pay a surprising amount of money for those things. That's crazy. So what's the angle with like a $35,000 annual support thing? Is that just because if we put something really expensive on there, some people are going to pay it? <laughs> or do you think that there's actually $35,000 of value? I think there is $35,000 of value. Um, <clears throat> I think it's, uh, you know, they're at a certain scale now, right, where they can have the staff to devote to something like that, which is important. Because what you know, part of what they're offering is, for instance, if you send a support ticket in, you always get an engineer. Like you don't get a, a regular entry, uh, you know, kind of first level support person. You get an actual developer. Um, so you're going to cut 
presumably the amount of time it takes to fix your weird issue. Um, you're going to get custom patching. You're going to get, they're going to go into your installation and optimize it and do things like that. Hands on stuff that you won't get them to do otherwise, because you know, for a thousand dollars, not going to do it. You know, there's the value is in thinking about it in terms of the cost to a big company when Jira goes down for a day. So they have 500 people using Jira when it goes down for a day, like Apple, right? Every year they, I don't know if these Jira, but you know, every year they have to ship iOS 8, 9, 10, 12, whatever. Every single year they're doing a new version. So if they lose one day of the year where they can't use their bug tracker, that's serious, right? Like they're, that's going to be a big problem. That's millions and millions and millions of dollars they've lost in that day. So they're like $35,000. That's ridiculous. Yeah, we, we just pay that no problem. And it actually says start, it starts at 35000 So I'm sure it's much more than that. For some, like if Apple is using Confluence for something, it's probably hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, but the value is in that, A, there really is that value there because if it's down for a really long time, that's a huge problem for them. And B, they have a huge budget and the guy who buys it wants to know that it's supported at the optimal level and they don't care about the money because it's not their money. They care about not getting fired, about making sure their team is productive. So it's that's the value to them is to know they're going to have a phone number to call, that they're going to have an account person who's dedicated to them, um, things like that. So, you know, and we don't even go to that scale yet. So I'm not saying that everybody should run out on day one. You know, if you're starting a product today, you should have $35,000 support tier. But um, at the same time, there's definitely, you know, a whole series of things that can go around a product um, to add revenue to it that might be surprising to, again, a developer who just thinks about kind of the code and, and what the product does versus all the services around it. And, and even the HubSpot has a whole ecosystem of consulting around it where people will customize the portal or want custom workflows or integrate the API with other systems. Um, and it's, it's crazy stuff. So, you, you know, when I say integrate the API with other systems, Every geek who listens to this podcast says, oh, you could just use Zapier or, you know, you just, you know, we can use Guzzle and we'll wire it all up. But that's not, like, that's not the real world. The real world is what the consultants end up doing is taking a CSV dump out of the enterprise ERP system and converting it and doing a bunch of stuff to sync it with HubSpot every night. So that's what somebody is paying $15,000 for a consultant to do. So, you know, and it's, there's nothing less sexy than what I just described. Right? Like that's <laughs> the least sexy thing you could possibly do in programming. And it's the exact opposite of everything you hear all day long if you're a geek on Twitter and TechCrunch and all this stuff and Uber and Airbnb and changing the world and all this stuff. But, you know, $15,000, that's, you know, uh, you know, a fifth or a sixth of a developer's salary for a whole year is what the consultants are going to charge for, you know, a couple of days work to do this crazy integration with some legacy weird system. And you know, so they're charging more than, you know, way over what the people paid us to buy HelpSpot. Um, you know, three or four times what they paid to buy the licenses to HelpSpot, they're paying the consultants to integrate these systems. So, you know, there's just a lot of uh, revenue opportunities and these weird edges that are not sexy at all, but can definitely be profitable. Yeah, especially when you're thinking about like kind of what you were talking about earlier, right? Where if you're trying out some new idea, the faster you can make as much money as possible from the fewest number of people, 
kind of the better chance you have of surviving, right? And making it right. into a successful thing. Cause not everyone is going to be an Airbnb or whatever. Right. And so an Airbnb, like, I don't even know, like, are they profitable? <laughs> Who knows? Uh, yeah, right? I actually don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> so many of these companies with the, you know, such huge amounts of venture money, like you don't ever know if they're like HubSpot's not profitable. Like, there's a lot of companies that aren't profitable that just have billions of dollars. You know? Yeah. So, weird. so what are your odds, right? If you're trying right. to, <laughs> go that right and that's a whole, me, whole different game that's a whole different game so uh, maybe getting back to uh, what we were talking about originally before we get going is there anything any new advice that you would give that you kind of thought of in the last nine years since this blog post for a programmer in 2015 who's thinking about starting a business yeah oh, man i mean I, we've covered kind of a lot of the the things i normally talk about i do think um you know, building your own kind of brand is more important probably than it used to be. Um, like even SEO and things wise, you used to just be able to put up a page and think about SEO a little bit and you'd rank in the first couple pages. That's harder these days. And, you know, having people actively linked to you is very helpful and doing all those kind of things. So directly and indirectly. So, uh, you know, having more personal brand, I think is important. Um, I get worried. One of the things I worry about in kind of modern, advice that you hear a lot is writing ebooks and things like that. I, I think, I don't know, I'm torn on that. I mean, it's, if you don't have an idea you're actively going after, I think it's kind of a cool thing to do and helps build your brand. Definitely. If you have a, like a more specific idea of what you want to do, I think it's kind of a distraction and is in, is, is harder than writing software. Like now you have to be a good author on top of writing software and market this book. And, you know, I think it doesn't, people think it's kind of teaching you to market and I don't know, maybe it is in some ways, but I, I'm not sure the skills are directly applicable to selling software. So, uh, you know, so that's always something I, I get a little bit concerned about that. There's so much emphasis on this, this, and you know, you have a really great book launch and you make $15,000 and that's great, but that's it. And it's, you know, it's not really recurring and um, you spent months and months doing it. So, you know, I think if, if you're just kind of, happy with where you work and you're doing this for side money and build your brand. I think that's awesome, but I don't know. I don't like it as like phase one of, I know the product I want to build and how, what are the steps I'm going to take to get there? To me, ebook is not step one of that. Um, and the pure content game in general is very competitive these days too, right? You have growth hackers and content marketing and every niche has tons of people writing about it. So uh, even just in general, content strategy is difficult, but uh but yeah, I think I think a lot of things do hold up. I mean, not to get focused on the code. I think you know you have a lot of these people who've been highlighted who are developers and Instagrams of the world who get put on the pedestal. But to really double down on the knowledge of the business and thinking about pricing, thinking about different pricing models, thinking about different business models, thinking about um, how you're going to support it and how you're going to keep customers, especially with SaaS, you know, good support's even more critical because. People aren't locked in. Well, they are and they aren't. But anyway, they, in theory, they're not locked in and they can leave you much more easily because they just stop paying you uh, for that in the next month. So um, things like support and how you're going to deal with that and, and be really good at that. Uh, because a lot of times just being fast, responding to people. You know, so many people put up projects or they put up products and you email them something and they don't get back for a week. Like that's your differentiator sometimes can be as simple as I respond to everything instantly. And that'll hook people in because they ask the question to you, you got back to them before they even moved on to the next Google search result to 
find the next option. And then, you know, like I said very, you know, at the beginning is a lot of times they're just going to pick the solution that they find first or that answers them fastest before they move on to the next thing and it's good enough and off we go and your product can get better underneath them uh, while they're in it versus your product having to be necessarily that great, you know, from the beginning. So, yeah, I mean... A lot's changed, but a lot hasn't changed. You know, you still have to build a good product and you have to support it well and you have to have the pricing right and you have to um, think about how you're going to market it. And yeah, but, but, you know, I think these days the nice thing is you can get up off the ground quicker. You can probably build, well, uh, that would be one, one other thing I would know is uh, it can be easy to build too many things, right? Because it is so fast to build. Like I see a lot of people kind of doing this mistake where they have seven different products, and they have seven different products all at the same time. And you know, just from us running two different products, two different main products, it was really, really hard. Really, really hard to run two products at the same time and do that well and market them and give them the proper thought and consideration. So, you know, if you're on the side of your day job, have four, five, six different products that you're working on, I think that's a dangerous kind of route. And it's easy to do now because you can build it fast. Uh, but part of it is just sticking around. I mean, part of why users keeps gotten bigger is just because we've lasted so long. <laughs> you know, we've just been around a long time, and it builds up, and it builds up, and it builds up. So um, you got to give it that opportunity. And if you're not listening to customers and able to, you know, implement their feedback because you're already on to product number two and number three and number four before you've even kind of fleshed out product one, I think that's a little bit of a danger zone too. Awesome, man. Well, we've been going for quite a while now, so it's probably time to start shutting her down. But is there anything else you wanted to talk about or plug or anything before we get going? Oh, man, things to plug? Uh, no, no, this has been great. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, I will. Uh, are you going to be at Laracon? I will be at Laracon, yeah. You're, you're speaking, right? You're I am. Speaking? I'm speaking this All year. Right. So I will see you at Laracon. Hopefully we'll see some of the other listeners come up and say hi. Always happy to chat. Um, yeah, and... No, I mean, I've, you know, helpspot.com is our main product. Lara Jobs, which a lot of people listen to the podcast probably have uh, heard of Lara Jobs. So if you're looking for a new job, then go Lara Jobs. I found my job through Lara Jobs. So Lara Jobs there is great. <laughs> what a, you can't get a better plug than that, right? <laughs> um, yeah, there you go. So yeah, it's been, that's been really cool being part of, you know, having our little fringe edge involvement in uh, the open source world and, and having Lara jobs and some of the other things we've done about, around Laravel has been really cool. So that's been a lot of fun. It's kind of cool when you get to a certain point and you have a little more time and money and things to do different things. Um, that's a kind of an interesting stage. That's so been fun the past couple of years to be involved in all this stuff and uh, meet so many great people that we otherwise wouldn't have met. So that's been really cool. Awesome, man. Well, thanks so much for coming on. This was really, really awesome and really informative. And I think I learned a lot. So I hope a lot of other people got a lot out of it too. Awesome, man. Keep up the great work. All right. Thanks. Uh, So show notes for this episode are going to be found at uh, fullstackradio.com slash episodes slash 20, the big two O finally. And uh, if you got any feedback or anything, Either hit me up on Twitter, shoot me an email, leave some comments on the website, whatever. If you can rate and review on iTunes, I hear that's pretty awesome. I don't really check it that much, but I hear it's a good thing to do. And uh, thanks, as always, to Hired for sponsoring the podcast. See you guys next time.